What if I were to tell you I could guarantee that I could make you rich? Would you be interested? If I were to say every person in this room can walk out of here today knowing exactly how to be rich, if we were to put that on the church sign or social media, people would have flocked today. And that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell every one of us how we can be rich. Now, I'm not promising that I can tell you how to have a lot of money. I, I'm not telling you how you can afford to prop up your feet and say, hey, I don't ever have to work another day in my life. The only sure path for that is to be a fired college football coach. And then you never have to work again and just rake in millions and millions of dollars so I don't have any secrets for how to have a lot of money today, but I can tell you what we are going to cover today. If you and I obey it, every one of us will be rich, really rich in all of the ways that matter. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? There are two letters to the Corinthian church in the New Testament. And there are several reasons for that, but one of the reasons as, is that this church had lots of issues. There were, <coughs> there were lots of problems that Paul had to address in the first letter. And some of them they got right, and some of them they didn't. And so Paul wrote a second letter to them to say, Hey, I want to affirm that you've taken the right steps in these areas, but here are some other things that I'd like you to, to get straight to. Well, by the time we get to chapter 9, Paul is talking specifically about a need that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had. They were being severely persecuted economically because of, their, because of their faith in Christ Jesus. Many of their Jewish counterparts would say, hey, wait a minute. You're saying that you follow Jesus now? I'm going to go get my table built by someone else. I don't want to support you. Wait a minute. You say that you are, are a follower of Jesus now? I'm not going to buy my clothing from you. I'm going to someone else. And so they were in great economic distress. And that persecution eventually would spread. But at this point in history, it had not yet reached all of the areas the way that it had there in Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of Christianity at that time. And so Paul began to say, look, we owe our heritage to these Christians back in Jerusalem. If Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and these others not, not spread out and started telling us the good news, we would, be, we would be condemned to eternal judgment. And so, since we owe a spiritual heritage to them, let's see what we can do materially to help them in their time of need. They're really suffering. And so, Paul said, uh, is, would someone be willing to receive an offering so that we can send it back to Jerusalem to help them. And so it's in that context that Paul wrote about these, wrote these words beginning in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. Paul said this, The point is this, 
The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace flow to you so that in every way, having everything that you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he who distributed freely, as it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide for you and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. In these verses, Paul tells us how to be rich in all of the ways that matter. And he said that the way to riches is in giving. The way to, to be blessed is to bless. To say, God, you have entrusted this time, this energy, these resources to me. And I want to use them for the betterment of others. And then as a result of our faithfulness, not because we earn it, but because he delights in doing so, God says, I will bless you even more. So let me try to cover three ideas this morning. First, and this one, this message will be easy to remember. I'm not always this clever with outlines, but all three of the main points today will rhyme. And the first thing that I want to talk about is the measure of, of giving. Paul said in verse 6, look, the key is in the generosity that you have. He says the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Paul said, look, I can't make this any more plain. If you are a generous person, you are going to reap a big harvest. If you are a stingy person, you are going to look into the harvest of your life and discover that there isn't much there. And so Paul said the way that we can be rich in every way that matters is if we are generous people. If we say, with my time, with my energy, with all that God has entrusted me to me, every resource that is within my management... If I am generous toward others, generous in his kingdom, then I'm going to receive even greater back. And so there is a measure to our giving, and it is, it is related to generosity. But see, then that creates a dilemma. It creates a problem. How do we know what is generous? I mean, what is the standard? How, how, how can we say, well, yes, I want to sow generously. I don't want to be a person who sows sparingly. I don't want to be a stingy person. How do I know if I am being generous or sowing sparingly? Well, let me give you a, a biblical principle. God never measures the level of generosity by what is given God measures the level of generosity by what is kept. I'll give you an example. You might remember in Luke chapter 21, lots of people were coming by to offer their uh, gifts, to, to present their tithes and offerings in the temple treasury. 
And Jesus and the disciples happened to be there. Maybe they were kind of standing over on the side. And as people were coming by, some people who wanted the attention and the applause of other people were making a dramatic display of their gifts. They were were presenting them with a flourish. And they were putting large amounts into the treasury. And then Jesus noticed a woman come by. And she opened her little coin purse. All older women have them. It doesn't mean you're an older woman if you have one. But all older women have them. And she opened her little coin purse. And she put in two coins of the smallest unit. In our currency, it would be two pennies. Not even two nickels, dimes, quarters. Two pennies. And when she put her money into the plate... Jesus remarked to his disciples, do you see that woman? She's given more than every other person who's come today. And I can imagine the curious expressions on the disciples' faces. Jesus, what do you mean? I mean, we saw, we heard the clink, clink when her two little coins went in. There were people who were presenting hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. People who were saying, hey, we've had a really good year. Here's a large amount. How can you say that what she gave those two pennies is a larger gift than what every other person gave? And Jesus explained, here's why it's larger. Everybody else that left here today, Jesus said, has money to go buy lunch, to pay their mortgage, to look for presents for others. This woman put in every penny she had. She only had two. When she walks out of here today, she has no money to buy lunch. She has no money to buy an extra wrap for the colder weather. She gave everything that she had. God never measures the level of our generosity by what we give. He measures whether or not we are generous by what we keep. Now, I don't know, I don't know the economic standings of, of every person in this room. I, I don't know the standing of any person in this room. But I feel confident there are people who, during the month of December, will put in, we've had a good year, we've got to, you know, kind of look at our taxes. And there will be people who have the capacity to put in thousands and thousands of dollars into our church budget. And, and initially we might say, oh, look at how generous that is. But there is someone who's compensation or retirement is limited and they may put in $20. And if we were looking only by human standards, we would say, well, this person who put in the $10,000 is much more generous than the person who put in the $20, but God may not see it that way. There's a measure that God uses and his standard 
of what is generous often is different from ours. My very first summer that I was a little intern at Mount Vernon, we were doing a mission trip south of Houston, Texas. So I was still, I mean, I was still a college student. And we loaded up and we're, we're driving down to do um, this mission work right on, the, right on the, close to Mexico. And after one of our stops to fill the vans with gas, as is required by each seventh grade boy, one of our students went in and purchased the largest Mountain Dew that he could get in the convenience store. A bottle wasn't good enough. Give me, you got the three-gallon size? I'll take that one. And so he put that Mountain Dew up at the fountain to drink and just filled it up. And as we were driving, he said to the guy driving our van, Charlie, I really need to stop. He said, what? You need to stop. He said, yeah, I've been drinking. He said, oh, man, we're making, we're making such good time. Is there any way? Can you just wait till we get to Houston? Can you just, I mean, the, the traffic in Houston's really going to be bad. If, if we can just wait till we get on the other side of Houston, that w- that w- can, is there any way that you, he said, well, h- how far is Houston? He said, it's not very far. It's not very, if you could just hang on. Okay, I will. And we drove 30 minutes. And then from the back, he said, Charlie, I, I really need to stop. He said, oh, can you just wait till we get to Houston? Look, we're flowing with traffic here. We're making really good time. How far? How far? It's just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. Can you wait till we get to Houston? Okay. And we drove another 20 minutes or so. And then this boy said, Charlie, I have got to stop. I mean, is there any way? Please. He said, okay, and then, I mean, it could not have been better timed. We passed a sign that said, Houston, 96 miles. (laughs) Now, to Charlie, since we had a 12, 15-hour drive to Charlie, Houston was just a little bit longer, but not to that boy. They were using a different standard. And sometimes God's standard is different from ours. We pat ourselves on the back sometimes and think, look at how how much I'm giving, look at how much I'm blessing. And God may say, "Mm -mm. you're doing an awful lot of keeping. And then there may be the person who says, well, I... What I'm doing barely makes a difference at all. I mean, there, there are people who are just doing so much more than I am, and God may say, you're giving more than everybody else. That's the measure of giving. The second thing that I want you to see is the pleasure of giving. Look down in verse 7. Paul wrote, Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there are people who who do serve. There are people who fill church slots. They occupy church positions, and they give themselves to those positions, but they do it grudgingly. There's constantly a sense of complaining. There's constantly a sense of, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. There are people who do the same with their money. They give, but they don't want to. 
Paul said, that's completely wrong. I, I can't speak for all that Paul meant here, but it's almost as if the person who does his work, uh, gives her money out of a grudging uh, heart or, or out of a sense of compulsion or really not wanting to give it, it's almost as if God is saying, well, why don't you just keep it then? I don't need it. If, if it's such a burden for you to serve, if it's such a, such a hardship for you to give, just keep it. I'll make it without you. You'll miss the blessing, but I will make it without you. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves the people who delight in saying, is there any way that I can bless today? Is there something that I can do that would lift the load of another? Is there something that, that I could do that might impact in other people? Could I scale back on some of what I'm spending to give a little bit more? I would love to do that. God loves a cheerful giver, one who, in fact, the Greek, I know that people hate this, but sometimes it's, it's helpful to know the exact word the Bible uses. It isn't even cheerful. The literal translation is God loves a hilarious giver. God loves somebody who, when he is putting his gifts in the offering plate, cannot stop laughing because of the privilege of giving. That, that when they have an opportunity to do something for another, there is never a sense of, oh, it's hilarious that they get to participate in the work that God is doing. I told you, I've told you several times, math was my favorite subject in school. It was the one that I did better in. I just enjoyed it more. And my least favorite subjects were science classes. I may have told you it was because in biology class, we started dissecting animals. And my, I do not have a strong stomach. That, when we started cutting open those animals and people would reach into their bodies and pull out the organs, look what I have. The only day that I enjoyed dissecting animals was the day that we dissected a cat. <laughs> because I thought, that's a good start. Let's start moving on. And so I never enjoyed, I never enjoyed sciences. And so when I got to Mississippi State, for my major, I had to have three science classes. And one of the reasons that I did not like them was because they came with a lab. You had, to, you had to not only go to class, you had to do three hours worth of lab. And so I was looking for the absolute least requirement science that I could find. So I started asking friends to figure out, hey, what, what can I take? And uh, several friends of mine said, hey, here is the, this, is, this chemistry class is what you need to take. This is the easiest, least responsibility chemistry class that there is. And so I signed up for it, enrolled in that class, registered for it, and walked into the classroom, and I immediately knew this is the place. This is the class for me. It was populated by at least two dozen Mississippi State football players. And I said, this is the one. This is the one. 
And so that class met Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 o'clock. And on the very first day of class, the professor was not there at 11 o'clock. He was not there at 5 after 11 or 10 after 11. At 15 after 11, we started saying, well, hey, maybe, maybe we're not even going to have class. I mean, what a way to start the semester. And then just before we folded up our notebooks and started to walk out, we heard coming down the hallway... Around the corner and into the door came our professor. His hair looked like Albert Einstein. (laughs) Part of his shirt was tucked in, part of it was out. He looked like he had slept in those clothes three weeks straight. Dark green top, dark brown pants. He came in and he said, ladies and gentlemen, And then he kind of lost his train of thought and looked out the window. Ladies and gentlemen, today we get to study chemistry. And he had this demonic grin on his face. (laughs) And he had it every day. He would come in every day and would, would mention some little chemistry fact or something. Would say, isn't that, isn't it wonderful? Isn't this subject wonderful? It's the building block of, of all human life. Isn't this wonderful? I never got it. I never enjoyed chemistry the way that he did. I, I never grasped it. I never woke up in the morning and said, today's Friday. Today's chemistry day. (laughs) Never. He could see something that I couldn't. And that's why he had pleasure. Really, really generous people can see something the rest of us can't. Those who are willing to pour out their time their energy, give their resources, have some perspective on life that most people miss. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove that it's true for most of us in this room that we miss it. Today is, what, November the 27th, so in about 28 days, Christmas Day will arrive. One of, it's got to be the most common question asked. What did you get for Christmas? Nobody ever asks, what did you give this Christmas? Nobody ever asks that. Nobody ever says, hey, uh, you know, tell me, tell me, what did you give? It's always, what did you get? Some of Jesus' most famous words are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In fact, if Paul had not been preaching this sermon, preaching a sermon, we might never have known that Jesus made this statement because it doesn't appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It appears in Acts chapter 20. And Paul said, just as Jesus taught us, 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. And people who are generous, those who sow generously, have discovered a joy in giving. And they genuinely believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's the pleasure of giving. The last idea that I want you to see from this passage is the treasure of giving. After Paul has encouraged these people to give, he's talking specifically about a financial offering for the Jerusalem Christians. I, I, I know that that is the specific appeal that he's making. But once he gets to verse 8, you can see that he amplifies to include an overall life principle. Down in verse 8, he said, And God is able to make every grace, not just monetarily, He's saying, look, I'm asking specifically about an offering, but I'm also telling you that a generous blessing lifestyle pays off because God is able to make every grace flow to you, not just extra money, so that in every way, having everything that you need, not just money, having everything that you need, you may excel in every good work, not just giving offerings. He's saying, look, God is, going to, God is not going to forget what you do. He's not keeping a chart saying, okay, here's what their paycheck's going to be because here's what they deserve or earn. God just says, I am telling you that based on your level of generosity, that's when you are going to see my level of generosity. Based on how you give, you are going to see how extravagantly I can give, not just in your pocketbooks, not just in your bank accounts, in every way, every grace, everything that you need. And then Paul continued down in verse 9. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever. Verses 10 and 11. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Not, not your investments he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Then listen to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity. Enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Now, I want you to read verse 11 again. Look at it in your Bibles. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God. He says, first, God is going to give to you. You are going to, you are going to be enriched so that you can show all generosity. Now, Paul did not use these words, but do you know what he's saying in verse 11? Blessed to bless. You have been blessed, so now go bless. And the harvest continues to come in for those who give, for those who bless, for those who minister, for those who serve. Sometimes you may wonder, people may ask. I, I've, I've been in Bible study before when people asked this question. Scripture tells us that at the close of human history... 
that's when all accounts with God will be settled. Romans chapter 14, verse 12 says, Every one of us will stand one-on-one individually, not with other people. Every single one of us will stand face-to-face with Jesus Christ to give an account for how we have lived. And the book of Revelation says that that day occurs when the earth as it is stops spinning. But logically, think about this, logically, couldn't God settle accounts as each person dies? Couldn't he? I mean, couldn't God say, okay, now now you have just passed away. You give an account for how you lived. God, instead of doing it all at the end of history... He could do it little by little by little. This person dies today. These three people die tomorrow. He could do it a little at a time. Why does God wait? Why is God going to wait until the end of time to settle the accounts? It's because until human history is over, we don't know the full harvest that we're receiving. Some of the wickedness that people have done in this world lives long after them. The effects of abuse, neglect, they may impact generations. And so God says, so, so I've got to see the full, I've got to see the full scope of all that your wickedness did before I determine how you will be judged. But the reverse is true, too. When we sow generously, the ministry that we do, the blessings that we provide may pay off hundreds of years from now from a legacy that was started here. And so God says, I, I, I don't know yet. Or he know, He said, we, you don't know yet what the harvest is is going to continue to be. And so we'll have to wait until all human history is over before I tally your blessings. There is treasure in giving, in blessing, being rich in every way. And God continues to add to it as the blessings that we give passed down to others in in cycles that continue. I've always loved going to church. I've told you that before. When I was growing up, I never pretended to be sick, to, to get out of going to church. I liked going to church. I don't remember this story, but my parents told it to me several times. When I was really young, maybe four years old or so, my parents were really having trouble getting me ready to go to church. They would, you know, try to get me dressed, and I would be as limp as a dish rag. They just couldn't get me ready to go. And they would say, son, come on, let's go. You know, it's time to, time to go. You know, we, we liked being at church on time. Now, that doesn't matter to most of you, but we liked getting to church on time. You know, we liked saying, hey, if it starts at this time, we want to be there then. We don't, you know, we don't want to drag in and, like, riffraff. And so, make that a New Year's resolution. 
And so my parents were saying, what, what's going on? You know, and they could not figure out. I'm a really private person, and so I don't talk about things that bother me. And the more something bothers me, the less I talk about it. And so they said, son, why, why will you not get ready to go to church? Let's go. We've got to go. We've got to go. And I would just drag around as much as I could. And then finally, one day, my dad got it out of me. He said, son, what is, what is wrong? You love going to church. Why are you, why are you dragging around so much? Because I knew staying at home wasn't an option. I was just trying to get there as late as possible. And then I confessed to my dad that several weeks before, when I walked into Sunday school, four or five years old, I had my little outfit on, and the teacher looked at me and said, oh, I had a little yellow shirt on. She said, Gary, yellow is a girl's color. Boys don't wear yellow. Well, I was embarrassed by that. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I mean, I had to sit through the whole Sunday school hour. But then after that, I did not want to go back. And so my dad said, son, don't know. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Boys wear yellow, girls wear yellow. Don't, that is perfectly fine. You don't have to wear that shirt again, but that's, that's, she's wrong. And so they got me to church, but still it was, it was you know, when you get embarrassed in front of a group of people, you don't like to, to go back. And so my dad owned a restaurant, and one day, our pastor, whose name was Bobby Perry, he's passed away now, came by my dad's restaurant to pick up something, and they were just talking, and not in a, not in a negative way or, or an accusing way. They just, Brother Bobby asked, you know, how, how are Gary and Alan and... And he said, well, you know, we've had trouble getting Gary ready to go to church. And he told him that story, and, you know, they just, you know, moved on. And then the next Sunday, we, we arrived, and we did not, at the permitters did not have assigned seats in church like many of you do. <laughs> That's why you can get here late, because, you know, people, nobody, nobody's going to sit in your seat. But we typically sat, you know, somewhere near the front. And before the service, the choir had not yet come in. And I was sitting there maybe with a bulletin and coloring in the O's and the G's and things like that. And I felt a tap on my shoulder, you know, from the pew, from, from in front of me. And I looked up and Brother Bobby was there. And he pulled back his jacket. And he was wearing a yellow shirt. And he said, I've got one too. I wanted to turn around to the teacher. <laughs> Say it to him. And from that point forward, my parents say they never had another issue getting me ready for church. Now, I want to tell you why I included that story in this message. I 100% believe what I'm about to tell you. I have no, not even a sliver of doubt about it. The reason that God has not settled accounts with Bobby Perry yet is because he gets part of the credit for any good that comes through me.
for any way that God is able to use me, part of the reward for that goes to Bobby Perry. Part of, of, part of his eternal, eternal reward is going to be based on the fact that he blessed me. I mean, who knows? I don't want to over-dramatize something, but who knows when I had been able to make my own choices? If that, if that experience would have soured me on church, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't know whether it would have or wouldn't, but I do know this, because of him, it didn't. And I 100% genuinely believe that when I am out preaching at a youth camp somewhere and teenagers come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, part of that reward goes to Bobby Perry. And that's the treasure of giving. When we say, God, in whatever ways you have blessed me, I don't want to be stingy. I want to keep pouring into the lives of others. And just watch as you do what you say you are going to do so that I will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. We are blessed people. And we are blessed to bless every day. Philip's going to come and lead us in a song of commitment today. Perhaps there are people who are here who have never received Jesus Christ as Savior. The only way that we can experience not only the blessings of this passage, but any verse that comes in the Bible is through knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. And so I want to say if there's any person here who has questions about beginning a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to be standing here at the front for just a moment as we sing together. If there are other ways that God's Spirit has spoken to you today and you want to, prayer or for the church family to hold you accountable, I'll be available to talk with you about that as well. Philip, what are we going to sing today? We're going to sing 135. Come Let's stand.